the book of Romans in chapter 8. I'm going to look again at the second verse in this chapter. It's an important verse, if for no other reason, because it provides the basis for verse 1, which is such a glorious and helpful verse. And so I want to read these the first two verses of Romans 8 again, and I want us to hear what our God is saying to us in these words. Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now my contention, which I have been trying to prove to you, is that this second verse teaches a very simple and glorious truth. Namely, that when we boil this verse down to its most basic meaning, I think it is teaching us that it is the gospel which the Spirit has used to set you free from the condemnation of the law. The gospel has set you free from the condemnation of the law. My argument is that the first part of the verse, the law of the Spirit of life, is a reference to the gospel. That the second part of the verse, the law of sin and death, refers to the moral law of God and especially to the condemnation that we deserve because we are transgressors of the moral law of God and that what the gospel has done is set us free from the condemnation we deserve. We're looking at this verse under five headings. The first was a common misinterpretation of the verse, and we dealt with that this morning. Uh, Second, we asked, why did Paul choose to use the words he did at the end of the verse? Why does he describe the condemnation he's just referred to in verse 1? Now in verse 2, why does he describe it in terms of the law of sin and death. Why is he using those words? And the answer that we saw this morning is that Paul wants us to understand that if any human being is going to be saved, it is the law of God which must be dealt with. It is the law of God that must be satisfied. Mount Hermon, every one of us lives under the authority of the absolute, unchangeable, moral law of God we saw this morning it's the law that we all know by nature though at times we try to suppress it it is the law of God summarized in the ten commandments that we've been moving through in our catechism on Sunday nights it's the law of God summarized by Jesus as love God love your neighbor and you and I will one day stand before the great lawgiver, the one who created us the one who sustains us And we will have to give an account for how we lived in accordance or out of accordance with His moral law. You might say, Justin, I don't want to be under this law. I didn't ask for this. To which I would simply say, friend, there is no such thing as living as a human being in this universe and not being under this law. For God to not care about you And the goodness or the evil in your life would be for God to be sinful Himself. If God does not care 
how you live. If our God is willing to let sin exist and go unnoticed and unpunished, then He Himself is wicked and not the God of the Bible. In other words, if you were to live without there being a moral law, there would also be no God, at least not a good one. And so you must have a life that exists under this absolute moral law because there is a God and a good God who exists. You cannot escape this. To my knowledge, there is no other realm or other universe you can escape to. This is the life we have. And so we need to settle it in our minds as an established thing. It has been appointed for every one of us to die. And then comes the judgment. And we will give an account concerning the moral law of God. Are you ready for that day? Are you prepared for that day? Well, before we go on to part three of our study, I want to make sure we understand why Paul describes the law the way he does. So I've answered the question, what is this law? It's the moral law of God. But notice he uses these words to describe it. It is the law of sin and death. Those are not happy terms, are they? And it might startle us a bit to hear Paul describe the law of God in those terms. I mean, he is talking about the law of God, and God is good. God is pure, and therefore God's law is good. God's law is pure. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day, says the psalmist, right? And so we have all of these passages in the Scripture that talk about the goodness of the law of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We read that this morning in our worship service. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This is the way other passages in the Bible talk about the law of God. The law of God is wonderful. The law of God is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. It teaches you how to live in this world. And then Paul describes it as the law of sin and death. Right? We might say, Paul, don't you remember what you yourself just said? Because back in Romans 7, verse 12, Paul said, The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. And so we might say to Paul, how can you go from that to now saying, The law of God is a law of sin and death. And here's the answer. And we've seen it in Romans 7, and Paul was going to make it clear in the next verse. The law of God is good. And we're not. If you and I had holy hearts, if you and I had submissive spirits, if you and I had real love for God beating in our chests, and if this was true for every human being on planet Earth, then the law of God would be an incredible help to every person in this world as we seek to serve our God. And for Christians, that is the way it is. The law is something that is such an incredible help as we seek to know what pleases my God. How can I obey my God? What is the path of blessing in this world? 
But for the natural person whose heart has not been changed, the law doesn't actually work that way. For the person whose heart isn't holy, for the person whose spirit isn't submissive to God, for the person for whom there is no love for God beating in his chest or her chest, when they hear God say, you shall not covet, guess what it makes them want to do? The law of God for us as Christians can be embraced as what a good thing, what a light giver, what a help to my life. It's it's an instruction manual for my life. Isn't that great? We have an instruction manual for how to have life well. But for the non-Christian and for us in our old nature, we respond to the law not as what a wonderful gift, but oh, I want to rebel. Have you ever felt like this in your life? Where somebody tells you not to do something and all you want to do is do it all the more because they said that. This is what happens when the law of God comes to depraved people. The law is good, but the people aren't. Romans 7 verse 5, the law arouses sinful passions in us. Romans 7, 7 through 12, Paul lays out this idea. Paul says we would not, that he would not have even known what it was to covet if the law had not told him not to covet. But when his wicked heart heard that commandment, you shall not covet, the sin in him seized the law and began to covet. In other words, his wicked heart said, oh, here's another way for me to rebel against God and for me to exert my deity that I am God of my life. You see, even though the law of God itself is good, because of our wickedness, it is a law of sin to us. It is a law that arouses greater wickedness. So here we are, and we're already bad. The law of God comes, and we get worse. Not better, worse. There is something in natural man that finds joy in breaking the law of God simply because it is the law of God. We hate the lawgiver by nature, and so when his law comes, we do the opposite of what he says. This is why Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, says this, The power of sin is the law. The power of sin, the strength of sin, the of sin is the law. The fuel, the energy, the propeller that moves us into greater and greater sin is the law. And when we respond to the law with greater rebellion and sin, the result is death. For the wages of sin is death. Not just that we die physically, though that's true. And not just the spiritual death that is ours because of Adam's sin. But there is a spiritual death that refers to hell. Eternal death. This good gift called the law of God is a law of sin and death to us because we are corrupt at heart. The law has aroused us to sin and now it demands that we be condemned. And until something is done to satisfy this holy law, we have no hope. We have no hope. 
But there is hope because verse 2 says something has been done. What is it? Well, this hope has come to us in the gospel. It is the gospel that the Spirit has used to satisfy the law and to give us life. So look with me at the third part of our study. Why does Paul describe the gospel in this strange way? The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. What's he emphasizing using those words? Well, I think the answer is this. Paul describes the gospel in this way because he's contrasting it with the moral law of God. Do you see how the two parts of this verse link together? Right? We have two laws. One is a law of sin and death. One is a law of the Spirit and life. One law is used by the Spirit to bring life. One law is used by sin to bring death. In other words, there's symmetry here. He wants to show us these two different laws and how contrary to one another they really are. Don't look to the wrong law for salvation. <laughs> Don't take the law of, second, of, of sin and death, the moral law of God. Do you think the moral law of God will get you to heaven? Guess what? It will if you keep it. <laughs> you can't keep it. You can't. By nature, we are morally incapable. No, the Ten Commandments are not a ladder that we can climb on to get to heaven. Our hands are full of oil and grease. The more we try and climb, the more we're just going to fall down and fall down and fall down again. No, Paul says, don't look to the law of the moral law of God for salvation. There's another law, a law that the Spirit uses to bring life. What is it? It is the gospel. Paul spoke this way in Romans 3, verse 27. In fact, if you remember, we're talking in Romans 3, the end of the chapter. It's what I call the Mount Everest of the Bible. It's where Paul gives the clearest explanation of the gospel and how it works of anywhere in all the pages of the Bible. And then at the end of this explanation of the gospel, in the end of his description of God's way of salvation, here's what he says. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. See, two different schemes here, right? The moral law of God, which says works, works, works. And the law called the gospel that says believe. Believe. There is the law of works, the moral law of God, and those that try to get to heaven that route do so by law-keeping. And then there is the law of faith, the gospel. This law has only one commandment, and it is a commandment. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. There is no boasting here. This route to salvation is completely of grace. It brings you to God, and in the end, the glory is all His. Way back at the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul said in verse 5 of chapter 1 that he received his calling to be an apostle for this purpose. He said, this is my purpose as an apostle, to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. Isn't that a strange phrase? The obedience of faith. Did you know that believing the gospel is an act of obedience? Right? Right? 
The gospel is a command. The gospel is a law. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Romans begins on that note. It also ends on that note. In the, very, in the next to last verse of the book, Romans 16, verse 26, Paul is talking explicitly again about the gospel that he preaches. And he's saying that he preaches the gospel, quote, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So Paul is not going city to city to city, preaching in the synagogue and then going to the Gentiles with, obey the moral law of God. That's not his message. Obey the moral law of God. No. That would be a terrible message because nobody could do it. He's going and saying, obey the gospel. Believe on Christ. Obey the gospel and believe on Christ. And guess what? When you obey the gospel and believe on Christ, guess what you begin to be enabled to do? To obey the moral law of God. So church, let's be very clear. The gospel is an invitation to salvation. The gospel is a wonderful call for us to believe on Christ and have our sins forgiven. But the gospel is more than an invitation. And it's more than a call. It is a command Every person on planet earth who ever hears the gospel is under obligation to believe it. And they will be held culpable before God if they do not believe it. Those who believe it will be blessed. Those who do not believe it will be cursed. The gospel is a kind of law. It is a commandment. Now, If the law of the spirit of life is the gospel, why does he refer to it as of the spirit of life? The moral law of God he defined in terms of sin and death. Why does he define the gospel in terms of the spirit and life? Well, you can see the contrast, can't you? Right? Sin, spirit, death, life. In the second half of our verse, the moral law of God is called the law of sin and death because our sinful nature uses the law to lead us to death. The gospel is called the law of the spirit of life because the Holy Spirit uses the gospel to bring us life. The gospel message comes to a person and the spirit of God, when God chooses, accompanies that message. And the Spirit seizes that message. Just as Paul said in Romans 7, sin, sin in me, seize the law and use it as an opportunity to sin leading me to death. So the gospel comes to you and the Holy Spirit seizes the gospel as an instrument of power. And the Spirit uses that instrument of the gospel to create life in you. Spiritual life so that you believe. He opens your eyes He changes you at the core of who you are. You are no longer one who hates God. You are one who who loves God. The gospel is the message that the Spirit uses to bring life. And there is no other message. And what happens when the Spirit uses the gospel to bring you life? You believe. You believe and are saved. Now, I really like the ESV. I like this translation of the Bible. It messes up on verse 2 of Romans 8. It just does. It just, in my opinion, and, and 
they didn't ask me when they translated it, so, you know, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so take that for what it's worth, okay? Smarter men than I translated this. But in my opinion, they messed up on verse 2. Why? Do you see the phrase, in Christ Jesus, in verse 2? And do you see how they have it after the words, has set you free? Right? Has set you free in Christ Jesus. When you open up the Greek New Testament, those words aren't there in the verse. They come after the words, the law of the Spirit of life. In other words, if you actually open up the Greek New Testament, I have one in my office, I'll show it to you, and you're reading this verse, it actually says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. I think that matters. And I think it matters because it explains how the gospel sets us free. Right? When the Spirit uses the gospel to bring us life, and we believe, it is in that moment that we are united to Jesus Christ in His life and in His death so that everything He did applies to us. So we have the law, which is the gospel, okay? Which the Spirit uses to bring us life. How? In Christ Jesus. Which I take to mean He unites us to Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit, through the gospel, makes you one with Christ Jesus. Dear Christian, Do you ever take time to just meditate on what it means that you are one with Christ? That you are united to Him? As a husband and wife are one, you are one with Him. Part of His body, part of His church, part of His kingdom. What this means is that the law is satisfied. Full atonement has been made and no condemnation is ours. All right. So, the way I'm understanding this verse, we had the moral law of God against us, and it was screaming at God, condemn the sinner, condemn the sinner. And then the gospel was brought to us, and the Spirit of God used it to give us life so that we believed on Christ. And the moment we believed on Christ, we were united to Christ, and therefore we are right in the sight of God. Number four, fourth part of our study. Isn't it interesting that of all the ways that God could have chosen to bring people to Himself, He chose to do it through a message? What is the gospel? The gospel is a series of facts. The gospel is a a collection of information. Uh, The gospel is a a, a message, something communicated through words, whether it's audibly or written down or you hear it in a song. It It is a collection of truth that says that Christ was crucified for sinners so that whoever believes on Him can have peace with God. And yet in this message, in this collection of facts, the glory of God is preached to us. In this message, we learn that God whom we have hated is a God who has yet loved us. That He is just and righteous and holy, but He is also compassionate and merciful and loving. The Spirit chooses to use a collection of facts communicated from one person to another to give life. That is how God has chosen to do it. And when the Spirit moves, it changes everything. Now remember what we saw this morning 
the verb has set free in the Greek is an aorist verb. Oh, I, I didn't point that out this morning, so I skipped that part, so I can't pretend like you heard it. So let me tell you what I was going to tell you this morning. Everybody see that verb, has set free, right? In our English translation, has set free. That is an aorist verb. So in English, we have past, presence, and future tense, right? I ran, past tense, not a country in the Middle East. I ran, past tense, right? I run, present tense. I will run, future tense. Well, in the Greek, they have another tense called the aorist tense. And when a word is in the aorist tense, and you always know because the spelling's different, okay, the, the last few word letters are different, when it's in the aorist tense, it describes an action that has already been completed. The action is done. The action is over. But the results continue into the future. This is what Paul is telling us in this verse. When the Spirit comes with you through the gospel and gives you life, you are united to Christ, and therefore you are free from condemnation forever and ever. Once you are united to Christ, it's done. It's a once-for-all thing. You have been set free from the condemnation of the law forever and ever and ever. Amen. You cannot fall back into condemnation. You cannot lose your salvation and then have to regain it back. You are free. You are free indeed. No more law keeping is a way to get right with God. Jesus has done everything necessary. There is now no condemnation for you. And that is how it is forever and ever. Okay, so we take verses one and two together. And we see that the Spirit uses the gospel to give you life so that you believe on Christ. When you believe on Christ, you're united to Him, you're in Him, and therefore you're right with God and there's no condemnation. What does this look like in the life of a real person? Let me just remind you of the story of John Bunyan and his conversion. And listen to how the Spirit specifically used the gospel to set him free. How the Spirit used the gospel to give him justification, no condemnation, rightness with God. John Bunyan had been a notoriously wicked man. John Bunyan was one of those men that had a reputation for his foul mouth, for his cruelty, for his crudeness. This was a man who um, no dad would have been home to see his daughter uh, hanging out with with John Bunyan, not at all. So when Bunyan got married, his wife had brought with her into the marriage a couple of godly books, which Bunyan began to read, and they began to affect him. And so because of what he had read in these books, he began to take an interest in church, and he began to attend church, and he began listening to the preaching But his conscience was full of fear and full of agony because he knew how wicked he had been. He knew the rotten man he had been for so many years. And he sensed that God was far too holy to ever make peace with a sinner like him. Uh, Bunyan really began to see that there is a different kind of life, a life of faith in Christ. When he was in the town of Bedford on business, And he was walking along the street when he noticed a group of uh, poor women sitting in a doorway and they were chatting with one another. But they were not gossiping 
And this was not idle talk. He was taken aback when he overheard what these ladies were discussing together. They spoke to each other about their relationship to God. They were talking about temptation. They were talking about how they fight temptation. And they were talking about how they did so out of love for their Savior. They spoke of Christ as one that they loved and trusted and knew intimately. And Bunyan was impressed by this. He, he had never met people who talked with such familiarity about Christ. And he wondered if, if he could be like that, especially with all of his sins against him. What might the Spirit use to change Bunyan's life? It was, of course, the Gospel. In particular, for Bunyan, it was the message that Christ is his righteousness. That Christ stands before God as our perfection before Him. Uh, Don't try and be righteous on your own. Jesus is your righteousness. Your righteousness is in heaven before God. So listen to Bunyan. I want you to listen to his words as he tells how this happened for him. He says, One day, as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes upon my conscience, Fearing lest all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. And there, I said, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He lacks my righteousness. For there it was, just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made me righteous, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there it is. Peace with God comes not by our own works or how we are feeling day to day. Our peace with God rests in Jesus Christ as we rest in Him. Bunyan says, I remember that one day as I was traveling into the country and musing on the wickedness and the blasphemy of my own heart and considering the enmity that was in me towards God, this scripture came to my mind. He hath made peace by the blood of His cross by which I was made to see both again and again that day that God and my soul were friends by His blood. Yea, I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through Jesus' blood. This was a good day to me. I hope I shall never forget it. (laughs) Don't you love that ending? That was a good day to me. I hope I shall never forget it. So in case you missed it, the picture was he was walking through the field and he's completely troubled. He senses his own unworthiness, his guilt, his sinfulness. And then this message of the gospel came to his mind by the Spirit. Your righteousness is in heaven. Your righteousness is Jesus. He did it all for you. He's in heaven. Trust him. And he said the Spirit used that message to flood his soul so that he saw, oh, it's not about me and my works and my efforts. Everything I need has been provided in Christ. I rest entirely upon Him. That's the gospel. That's the message that the Spirit uses to give life, to set us free from condemnation. So let's close our study 
with this implication. Since it is the gospel that the Spirit uses to save souls, how important it is that we believe the gospel and that we proclaim the gospel. Mount Hermon, there is no other message that that God himself has ever promised to bless in the way that he blesses the gospel. There is no other message that the Spirit uses to unite people to Christ. There is no other message that the Spirit uses to open blind eyes. There is no other message that the Spirit uses to to give life to dead hearts. The message of Christ Jesus crucified for sinners is preeminent above all other messages. In his own ministry, we find Jesus going to every town and he's preaching. And what was he preaching about? The politics of the day? Phariseeism versus Sadduceeism, which was our Republican versus Democrat. That's what the hubbub was about in his day. That's that's what the, the religious leaders themselves were discussing, these politics between the two. And Jesus came and what did he preach? The gospel. That was his message. He had no time for the political events of the day. His message was the gospel. The apostles in the book of Acts what do they do? They, they spread throughout the world. And what are they preaching? It is the gospel. It's their one and only message. We, we don't ever find them preaching other things to the crowds. It's always the gospel. What did Paul tell the Romans in chapter 1? I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why, Paul? Because I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for Paul, for the apostles, for Christ. Christ himself, the central message, the only message that the Spirit uses to bring salvation is the gospel. And therefore, Mount Hermon, this church, must always be a place where the gospel rings forth. We must never let any other message become preeminent in the pulpit of this church. And the day that any other message becomes preeminent in the pulpit of the church is the day you need to fire the preacher, even if it's me. Okay? There is no other message. Young people in here, 50 years from now, if you're still at this church and there's another message being preached from this pulpit over and over again with passion, but it's not the gospel, work to change it or find a better church. Okay? We are only a true church as long as we proclaim this message. The day we stop proclaiming this message, we cease to be a church. We're something else, whatever the sign outside says. This is the message that sets people free from the condemnation that we deserve. Our messages must never be, our our central message as a church must never be a political message or a self-help mumbo-jumbo message. Our message must never be rules of morality to earn God's favor. The church has one supreme message. It is the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone. That is our message. And so, I put the gospel before us again this evening. We can escape the terrible condemnation that we deserve by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We can do that because He went to the cross and bore the punishment that sinners deserve. And He lived the perfect life that we have failed to live. Jesus did everything necessary to make us right with God. But it's only for those who believe. 
And so the most important question in our lives is, do we believe? Are we believing? Not what did you do 10, 15, 50 years ago. Are you believing this moment? Are you trusting in Christ? And if so, He's everything to you. He is your highest delight because of what He's done for you. So trust the Savior. Live in the gospel. Let that shape everything we do as individuals, as families, and as a church. Let's pray.